This is Wine, Women, and Revolution with your host, Heather Warburton. Hi, and welcome to Wine, Women, and Revolution. I'm your host, Heather Warburton. Today, I have a super exciting guest for you guys. And he has written a number of books, um, one of which is Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms, and specifically the one we're talking about today, We the Corporations, the Amer- uh, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. You're also a professional professor of constitutional law at UCLA. Welcome to the show, Adam Winkler. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. So what sparked your interest in corporate personhood and made you decide to write a book about it? Well, in 2010, the Supreme Court held that corporations had the same free speech right as individuals to spend their money on elections in the notorious case of Citizens United. And Citizens United got me thinking, how exactly did corporations win our most fundamental rights? I knew that there was a backstory behind Citizens United and maybe even a long line of cases about protecting the rights of corporations in America. But we often don't think about those cases or study those cases in law school. And so I wanted to go back and sort of um, excavate that history. Uh, What was the the backstory of Citizens United? Right, because that's, I think, when most people nowadays think about corporate personhood. They either think about the Citizens United or the Hobby Lobby case, where a corporation has freedom of religion or freedom of speech. But you actually discovered this battle, at least in this country, goes back hundreds of years, right? That's right. Uh, I was surprised to find that uh, the very first Supreme Court case on the rights of business corporations was decided all the way back in 1809. Uh, To put that in some perspective, the first Supreme Court case on the rights of African Americans under the Constitution wasn't decided until 1857, the notorious Dred Scott case. And the first Supreme Court case on the rights of women wasn't until 1873, in Bradwell versus Illinois. Um, remarkably, the first case on corporations was decided a half century early, a half century earlier than those cases. Um, and unlike Dred Scott and unlike Myra Bradwell, the minorities and women who brought those cases, um, the corporation behind the first corporate rights case actually won its case. And uh, indeed, the Supreme Court has been protecting the rights of corporations uh, much more vigorously than it's protected the rights of women and minorities over the course of American history. So can you go into a little more detail about what that 1809 decision was? Sure. Um, It involved the most powerful and richest corporation in America at the time, the Bank of the United States. Um, uh, The Bank of the United States is famous for giving rise to the two political parties as Jefferson and Hamilton split over the bank. Um, But uh, it also gave us the first corporate rights case in the Supreme Court. The Bank of the United States uh, sought to win the right to sue in federal court under Article Three of the Constitution, a provision that guarantees citizens of one state the right to sue in federal court as compared to state court when they sue citizens of another state. And despite the fact that the Constitution refers to citizens and not uh, corporations, uh, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Uh, the Bank of the United States, uh, and really laid the foundation for 200 years of corporate rights cases to come. Wow. And I know one thing that you've commented on, I think I've heard you in other interviews talking, corporations actually go back into the founding of this country, that the first colonizers, as it were, were corporations, the Virginia Company and the Massachusetts Bay Company. That's right. You know, we think of our origin story as Um, the pilgrims who landed at Plymouth Rock uh, in 1620. Um, But 
those weren't the first uh, successful English colonists uh, to come to America. Uh, the, that honor belongs to the colonists at Jamestown uh, about 13 years earlier. And Jamestown was clearly a business venture. Uh, it was organized by the first corporation uh, in America and one of the earliest stock corporations in England, the Virginia Company of London. And it was designed not to bring religious freedom and opposition to tyranny to America, but to come to America to exploit our resources, uh, to turn a profit for that company. Uh, and so long before the religious dissenters and that principle of personal freedom came to America, the corporation had already uh, set, up, um, set up shop, if you will, in Jamestown. And I think you also commented on that um, some of the first pushback against corporate corporations was the Boston Tea Party. Like we think about very different reasons, but that was actually a case of some corporate pushback there. Can you go into that a little bit? That's right. I mean, we think about the Boston Tea Party as one of the legendary moments in the American Revolution, but it wasn't just a protest against the British government. It was also a protest against the world's most powerful corporation, the East India Company, that was responsible for the tea trade throughout much of the much of the world at the time. And um, what happened was, is that the East India Company, uh, all, the, your, all the economies of Europe were heavily invested in the East India Company. And when the East India Company's fortune sagged in the early 1770s, it required a massive bailout by the British government. Uh, so it would stay afloat and that the economies of Europe would stay afloat. Uh, the East India Company was deemed too big to fail. Uh, and <laughs> That sounds very yeah, familiar. It sounds familiar. Indeed. And so as part of that bailout, the British government gave the East India Company the right to sell tea in the colonies for the very first time without using American middlemen. So because of that bailout, actually the price of tea in the colonies had gone down, but they had gone down by cutting out the American merchants who were involved in the tea trade. And so that Boston Tea Party uh, was a revolt, uh, mostly of merchants who were upset about being cut out of the tea trade. And they targeted the tea that night. That was the tea of the East India Company uh, and threw that tea overboard very specifically as a symbolic protest against the East India Company. So it's been a long battle with corporations trying to gain rights and being some pushback against those rights. But I think I heard um, or I saw in the book that kind of the big, I guess, turning point, you might say, was when corporations won their rights under the 14th Amendment, the rights of, you know, the newly freed slaves, and that that was actually based on some lies and deception that court case was? Well, it's really one of the most remarkable and unbelievable stories in the history of constitutional law, really. And it's a story about how uh, a man named Roscoe Conkling, who was at the time one of the most illustrious politicians and powerful politicians in America, um, well, became a lawyer for the Southern Pacific Railroad after he retired from Congress. And as part of uh, his work for the Southern Pacific Railroad, he argued that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was added to, uh, right after the Civil War to protect the newly freed slaves from discrimination, also protected business corporations, and that lawmakers could not discriminate against corporations either. Um, and he went to the court and he made this argument. It was quite audacious, but Conkling had unusual credibility with the justices. He himself had been nominated and confirmed to be a Supreme Court justice, turning the seat down um, because uh, for financial reasons, he was making too much money as a lawyer for the railroads. Um, uh, and uh, as a lawyer for the railroads, he, uh, uh, he made this argument um, 
And he talked that the 14th Amendment was drafted to protect the rights of business corporations. And amazingly, though, Conkling himself had been one of the drafters of the 14th Amendment. So when he was arguing about the intent of the framers of the 14th Amendment, he was talking about his own personal experience. Turns out that we now know that Conkling had lied to the Supreme Court, that the 14th Amendment had not been written to protect the rights of business corporations, uh, but Conkling was desperate to do anything to win his case. And I guess because people believed him, that started setting a precedent that other court cases drew upon, right? That's right. Well, one of the remarkable things happened is that uh, the Supreme Court ultimately ruled in favor of the Southern Pacific Railroad, but didn't make any statement about the constitutional rights of corporations. In fact, it said we're not deciding that issue today at all. But the court's reporter, a bureaucrat who publishes the official opinions, wrote in a summary of the opinion that the court had held that corporations were protected by the 14th Amendment. And in years to come, that case would be cited over and over and over again for holding that corporations had rights under the 14th Amendment, a principle that the Supreme Court did not embrace in that case. Nonetheless, the court was entering a period of its history known as the Lochner era that was very business friendly, and the court often read the Constitution broadly to protect business corporations. Indeed, there was a study done in 1912 of all the 14th Amendment cases decided by the Supreme Court in the 44 years since it had been ratified after the Civil War, and found remarkably that there were 28 cases on the rights of African Americans and 312 cases on the rights of business corporations. And generally, corporations won their cases, right? Corporations won a lot of their cases, whereas African Americans really did not win uh, almost any of them. So uh, the 14th Amendment had really been transformed from uh, a shield to protect the former slaves from discrimination into a sword used by business corporations to strike down unwanted regulation of the economy. And that court reporter you spoke of was an ex-railroad executive, right? So this wasn't yeah. an accidental mis- like writing something down. This seems intentionally deceptive. <laughs> Well, if you're one for conspiracy theories, you might note that he was the former president of the Newburgh and New York Railway Company. Um, uh, it, we're not sure exactly what his motivations were. Um, uh, his name was Bancroft Davis, J.C. Bancroft Davis. And over the course of his tenure as the reporter of decisions, the justices often uh, found his descriptions of their opinions and summaries of their opinions uh, quite contestable. Uh, and uh, he was not well liked by the justices. Um, who found that he was generally not very accurate. So it could have been inadvertence. We're not really quite sure. It does seem like it was intentional. Regardless, uh, the rights that the corporations won as a result of his uh, mishandling of that case um, were pretty significant and have paved the way for many, many more cases striking down regulation of business. How did he get that job? Was that an appointment? Or, I mean, it seems like an odd job for a railroad executive to take that, you know, a court reporter is not really, you know, it seems, I don't know, just an odd career path. It is today, but wasn't back then. So at the time, uh, this job was a very plum spoils position. At the time, you, uh, the reporter of decisions had the exclusive right to sell the official volumes of the Supreme Court reporter. Um, and so as a result, um, this was a plum job that was held by people of quite uh, quite great reputations. In fact, I think two reporters before J.C. Bancroft Davis was a fellow who's the former Secretary of State for the United States. So in fact, up until the early 1900s, this job was always held by illustrious people who had really uh, very stellar resumes 
because this was a political spoils job that went to people who were uh, well-connected and uh, used the job to make a bunch of money. So it was a much more powerful position than it is today, that it was somebody knew that when they were taking it, this was a powerful position. That's right. Today, this is just a bureaucrat's job. You wouldn't know the reporter of decisions uh, and the reporter of decisions doesn't have the right to sell these volumes for his own or her own personal profit. So it's a much different world today as a result of civil service reform and whatnot. Uh, But back in the day, uh, it was a plum spoils job. And uh, you could have people like uh, J.C. Bancroft Davis, uh, who were somewhat unethical, um, taking that post. And I think one of the other interesting things was these two court cases you're talking about was actually part of a 60 test cases that the railroad company was just basically throwing shit against a wall and see what would stick, what kind of rights they could earn, basically. Well, that's right. This was a the Southern Pacific Railroad filed a total of over 60 cases seeking 14th Amendment rights for corporations. We think about test cases uh, and we think about the NAACP fighting against racial segregation, um, but this idea of bringing a whole series and slew of test cases to win new rights uh, was not invented by the NAACP and it was used by the Southern Pacific Railroad many years earlier. It points to something that we often uh, forget in constitutional law, which is that If you're going to win rights in the Supreme Court, you need money and you need good lawyers. And while the NAACP had Thurgood Marshall, one of the greatest lawyers of all time, and the ACLU had Ruth Bader Ginsburg, again, one of the great lawyers of all time, civil rights organizations historically have struggled for resources and can't bring just any case. They have to be very careful about which cases they bring. Corporations, by contrast, have always had the resources to hire the best, most expensive lawyers money could buy to bring risky, um, unlikely to win lawsuits. Uh, But like you say, throw anything at the wall and see what sticks. And these two out of the 60 drastically altered our relationship with corporations in this country. Are those the only like, or are there other examples of corporations just throwing out massive amounts of test cases and trying to win their rights? No, there's so many other examples. Uh, For instance, in the 1800s, it was very commonplace for states to have protectionist laws that said, if an out-of-state company wanted to come do business in our state, you have to meet certain requirements and pay certain uh, bonds and insurance requirements. Um, Corporations fought against these laws for almost 100 years, bringing cases under every different constitutional provision they could think of. Um, mostly they lost those cases up until the very end when they finally won. Uh, and now those kinds of laws are considered generally unconstitutional. And it was a, literally a hundred year effort by corporations to strike down those laws. And these corporations just sort of use their massive wealth in the courts at the time. But because of Citizens United, now they actually can contribute directly to politicians to a, help further stack the Supreme Court in their direction so they get an even more pro-business court and just get laws passed that benefit the corporations directly now. So how did that, was that really just uh, Citizens United that allowed that or was there a lead up to that as well? Well, there was definitely a lead up to that. Citizens United uh, was a good example of judicial activism for many reasons, but um, there was a history of corporations winning First Amendment rights even before Citizens United. Um, corporations were involved in some of the earliest First Amendment cases ever to win in the Supreme Court, um, notably cases brought by newspaper companies challenging censorship by uh, Louisiana Governor Huey Long back in the 1930s. 
Um, and those newspapers won that case, even though they were corporations seeking First Amendment rights. And then in the 1970s, um, about um, almost 40 years before Citizens United, uh, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Bilotti that corporations had a free speech right to spend their money on ballot measure campaigns. That opinion was written by uh, Justice Lewis Powell, who before he joined the court had written a memorandum for the Chamber of Commerce um, outlining um, political mobilization of business to fight back against the Ralph Naders of the world. Um, his memo ultimately became constitutional doctrine in the Bilotti case. Really? That's okay. That's interesting. I did not know that. Like that Powell memo was something that we in leftist circles talk about a lot because a it directly led to the modern chamber of commerce, but basically told corporations to act like activists was essentially that, you know, activists were starting to win gains um, and corporations were looking for ways to fight back. So they kind of all came together in corporate solidarity and uh, started pursuing that. So that's a very interesting, uh, I'll have to add that to my research when I start talking about the Powell memo. <laughs> well, that's right, because what Powell does is he writes that memo just a few months before he's appointed to the Supreme Court. No one really knows about the memo until after he's on the Supreme Court. And the memo becomes really famous and gets passed around to business executives and historians of that period really cite that memo as an important sort of call to arms and organizing tool uh, for uh, the conservative business backlash that ultimately resulted in the election of Ronald Reagan. But even before that, Powell's on the Supreme Court putting his memo into practice by reading the Constitution to fit with uh, the claims that he made in his memorandum, like businesses have a right to participate in politics on equal footing as individuals. Yeah, I uh, facilitate classes about income inequality based on a book by Les Leopold, and he lays some of that out, but that court case isn't part of it. So I'm going to have to start adding that into my curriculum when I'm teaching those classes. Right. <laughs> So now we've gotten to the point where basically corporations have pretty much all of the same rights as a person, but none of the limitations. A corporation can't die. A corporation, you know, Texas can't execute a corporation, as it were. Um, so what do we, how do we fight back and do, say corporations aren't people? Like, what is our path to reversing some of these, I'll say, quite ridiculous laws that we have now? Well, there's been a couple paths. Um, I mean, one path that's been proposed is to amend the Constitution, to say that corporations are not people and have no rights under the Constitution. I understand and sympathize with those who think that's the right answer for uh, the, this Citizens United problem, but I think it's, it goes a step too far. We should remember that there's lots of organizations that take the corporate form that are technically corporations but are not business corporations. Planned Parenthood, for instance, is a corporation. The Sierra Club is a corporation. The ACLU is a corporation. If corporations have no rights, then Planned Parenthood can't fight to protect the right of women to choose abortion. That um, the ACLU uh, couldn't, uh, wouldn't have a right to free speech. Uh, that can't be the right answer. Uh, I think we need to have a nuanced answer that recognizes that some kinds of corporations, like for-profit business corporations, should be treated differently than other kinds of corporations. And I think the answer is not in rewriting the Constitution, but probably in the Supreme Court rethinking some of its most recent cases. The truth is, is many corporate rights are not that controversial. I think if most people think that government should not be able to swoop in and take Google's campus up in Northern California in the Bay Area and say you that's are government property. You're a communist here, so. Oh, well, okay. Well, some people might. 
<laughs> some people, but I think it's a pretty mainstream view across the Western industrialized world that you know that government shouldn't be able to sweep in and take property without just compensation. That that would breed a certain kind of tyranny. Um, but like I say, like you say, right? Not everyone believes that view. Um, but I will say that I think corporate rights were not very controversial when it was that issue alone. Uh, property rights. What's mostly what's so controversial these days is rights of free speech, rights of religious freedom, rights that don't seem to fit with the corporate form in the way that, uh, say, property rights might make more sense. And corporations now, actually, I don't know where I heard you speaking about this. Corporations have a race and a gender, essentially, that, you know, a corporation, a minority-owned corporation is a minority, or a female-owned corporation is considered female now. Like these are. Well, that's right. It's, <laughs> okay. it's an odd thing. Like even if we say corporations are people, we probably all agree that they don't have a race or they don't have a sex, right? That they are fictional people. But there are ways in which the law has had to deal with this question kind, kind of directly. One way is through um, affirmative action programs that uh, recognize minority business enterprises. Uh, in fact, there's a very famous Supreme Court case on racial discrimination that's brought by a company that's owned by white people claiming that the law discriminates against them by providing preferences for uh, businesses that are owned by minorities. Uh, so we don't think of businesses as having a race, but actually, and for some purposes, we do have minority business enterprises. We do have um, or, uh, businesses where the owners are women, and so we consider that organization essentially female for purposes of certain kinds of government contracting programs. So what was this douchey corporation that uh, thought they were being white people being discriminated against? What was that case? That was a case called Adiran Constructors Inc. versus Payam. And it was a case in which Adiran Constructors, a, a contracting firm, uh, lost out on a bid to build a highway. Uh, and, uh, and so it sued the federal government saying that the affirmative action program that had set aside a certain percentage of federal dollars for minority businesses was unconstitutional. It was a, amounting to race discrimination against that company. Interestingly enough, the court never in that case uh, uh, thought, uh, even recognized that it was a corporation bringing the case and not an ordinary individual and addresses the case as if it were just a white person rather than a white corporation bringing that case. And hopefully they lost, even, even they though won. they won. Okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> hey, look, this is the Supreme Court, you know, and, this, and part of the story I'm telling in my book is that we think about the Supreme Court as a bulwark for the protection of minority rights for the vulnerable and the dispossessed. When in truth, the court has exercised its power over the course of its history far more often to protect the wealthy and the powerful, including business corporations. Uh, and so when we look at this history, maybe we shouldn't be as surprised as, uh, as maybe we might be at first, because... Um, this is really the story I tell is really a story most of us already know deep inside, which is, is that um, the Supreme Court and the Constitution has mainly been used to protect the powerful, not the powerless. And so you say that changing the Supreme Court and maybe reversing some of these decisions is a path to rectifying some of these wrongs that have been done. But that seems sort of unlikely, too, as you know, corporations become more and more powerful and get more and more pro-business Supreme Court justices. I've heard, you know, recently people are talking about, well, let's just appoint a lot more justices to the Supreme Court. Is that even a thing that could happen? And is that a path to reversing some of these wrongs? You know, that is a potential path. And I do think that if the Democrats uh, win back the White House uh, and maybe the Senate in 2020, there'll be a push to expand the Supreme Court or change the number of justices. 
Um, I don't think that that's not likely to be a very successful uh, mechanism to r radically overhaul constitutional law. What we've seen already over the course of American history, there's been a lot of justices appointed to the Supreme Court by all political parties. And what we find is, is that, uh, or at least by the two major political parties, and what we find is, is that the justices appointed through that system are overwhelmingly pro-business, that we think of justices often as being left or right or Republican or conservative or liberal, um, when what unites them most over the course of American history is a willingness to side with business. Uh, and even today's Supreme Court, where there's a lot of 5-4 ideological division on the hot button social issues, if you look at the issues that, uh, that, or, that are about business regulation, we actually find that even the liberal justices are often on board with uh, freeing up businesses from unwanted regulation. So, you know, this perfectly fits in with why I'm a socialist and because it, it does come back to class struggle and there's a class difference there and that the capitalist class always has the rights, always has the power, no matter who's in charge, that the capitalists are always in charge, essentially. Well, that's right. And then when you say, well, is, uh, is appointing justices of the Supreme Court uh, a likely path for victory? Um, I, you know, I will admit one of the sort of fatalisms that, uh, that's developed in me as a result of writing this book uh, is, is that there is no real likely path to victory, that corporations have controlled American law since the very beginning and are likely to do so for, uh, uh, for as far as we can see into the future. Um, one of the things I noticed and wrote about in my book is that Often, corporations have been very good at exploiting progressive reforms um, that are designed to help the, the powerless uh, and the minorities uh, to benefit them and to benefit those corporations. Uh, and so I talk about how uh, we mentioned earlier the 14th Amendment adopted to protect the newly freed slaves was used primarily by business corporations. Uh, the First Amendment today, about 50% of all First Amendment free speech cases brought in the courts are brought by business corporations and trade associations that represent business. Um, uh, so we see this over and over again. Uh, corporate PACs, right? One of the banes of uh, American political campaign financing uh, really got their start about 30 years after labor unions started forming PACs to pursue progressive ends. Um, and uh, so we see over and over again that whenever you change the law to protect um, progressive values, corporations swoop in and seek to take advantage of those options uh, to protect businesses. So basically, uh, we're all screwed, I guess, is the takeaway from this interview today. <laughs> yeah, so go have a nice muffin and a good cup of coffee, enjoy your life, and recognize that you're probably all screwed. But one of the interesting things is happening. You heard it here first from Adam Winkler. Yeah. We're all screwed. Go have a muffin. <laughs> one of the interesting things that's happening, though, is, is that there is increasing political pressures on businesses to represent the values of their customers. And, um, and so we're seeing that. It's a surprising ally in the fight for LGBT rights has been um, uh, corporations and businesses that have opposed these transgender bathroom bills, the ones that stop people from using the bathroom of their gender identity, um, uh, because of protests. The corporation saying, hey, look, if you adopt this law, we're not going to bring our business to your state. Uh, and that's had an effect on some states in being reluctant to violate uh, LGBT rights. Um, but again, corporations do that for reasons of business. And at the end, uh, profit will win out. Oh, that's disappointing. Um, do you have any takeaways or, or last words that you want to add to this interview before we call it a day? Now that we've bummed everybody <laughs> out. 
Well, I don't know. I don't think of it as bumming people out. I think, you know, especially people who are real progressives and want to see fundamental change in society, they want to see how we got to where we are and what are the problems that we need to solve. Um, and one of the things I point out in my book is that we think about corporate power in the political space, especially after Citizens United, about corporations being able to use their money to influence legislation and to restrict the ability of lawmakers uh, to, or they restrict the lawmakers from passing laws regulating business. But what I found is, is that corporations are also really powerful in court, and corporations have used the Constitution. Uh, to uh, abuse the, the the world of justice, and that we think Lady Justice is blind, holding the scales, everyone will be equally treated, but the system of justice is skewed heavily in favor of big business and wealthy corporations. Yeah, well, I think any, if you ask any person of color, they would tell you the system is not blind and is not just, so it shouldn't come as that big of a surprise that corporations have, you know, used that system to their own advantage because it's not fair it's not just it's never been fair or just and the blind justice is kind of a myth but i think grassroots activism you know this is how i always end my show as i say the future is yours to create go out there and create it i think it really is going to come down to people doing something about this that it's going to take organize organization organizers and human person, not corporate solidarity, but human solidarity to address this. So that's my hope and my takeaway for it is that we have to work together. We have to stand with our brothers and our sisters and really make something that does work because what we have almost can't work for us anymore, that we have to create the world we want to see and be open to some fairly different um, things than what we currently have that, you know, keep an open mind about things. I think that's a great attitude. And if there's one takeaway that's hopeful from my book, it's that the corporations were not written into the Constitution. They were not, the Constitution was not written to protect them. But they fought diligently and per persistently for 200 years to win fundamental rights and to change the Constitution. And if there's a hopeful story to be told, it's that uh, the Constitution isn't written in stone and that it is about fighting and fighting and fighting. And corporations never gave up. And that's why they've been so successful. And we, the people, we want to fight the corporations. We have to choose never to give up. And maybe one day we can emerge uh, equally as victorious. So what, if people want to follow you, do you have a website they can go to? Where can they get your books? Yeah, well, my books are available at independent bookstores near you. So go to, uh, frequent your independent booksellers in your community and your neighborhood. Uh, we, the corporations, how American businesses won their civil rights um, uh, is available also uh, through Kindle or electronic versions. Uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Adam Winkler. And uh, uh, you can always Google me and find my contact information if you want to get in touch. And your other book deals with gun control, right? Is that your, a newer yeah. book or is that an older book? That's an older book. I wrote that in 2011. It's called Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. And it looks at how gun control, uh, how gun rights have not, uh, that the NRA has really sold us a bad story about gun rights, that gun control and gun rights are part and parcel of uh, the Second Amendment and that Americans have always had gun control laws too. Uh, and that the Second Amendment must be understood to uh, allow effective and reasonable gun control, not just the right to bear arms. What are you tackling next? I know you must be working on something. I'm planning on working on my golf game. Ah. <laughs> no big controversial book in the works yet, or you don't want to give the spoiler away here? 
I just haven't written enough of it to start spoiling it. You know, I got, I got to do more work before I hype it. So, well, I'm sure, you know, people will be looking forward to it. And thank you so much for joining us here today. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. To my listeners, thank you so much for joining us. The future is yours to create. Go out there and create it.